Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect ex exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, I have the honor of introducing our uh, distinguished guest speaker for today, Dr. Ligon Duncan. He is a fellow minister in our denomination, uh, the PCA. He's the author, co-author, and editor of over 35 books, which is crazy. Uh, he's the chancellor and CEO of RTS, which stands for Reformed Theological Seminary. And there are 10 campuses in our country and around the world. And uh, this week, he's up in the city to co-teach a class with uh, Tim Keller this week. And Ligon has just been an, uh, an absolute treasure for the church uh, in America and around the world. And so uh, it is my delight to introduce you to him at this time. So can we give him a warm welcome? It's a joy to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, keep them open to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't, you can follow along in the bulletin. That's the very passage that we're going to be considering today. And uh, it is a joy to be with you. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here with your people, Pastor, and uh, to enjoy fellowship with the people of God and to open the Word of God to all of us who are gathered today. Uh, now, I would not presume to preach to you on what your DNA is as a church. I want you to know that. I wouldn't come in uh, riding on my pony into, uh, into Manhattan and explain to you who you are. Your pastor uh, asked me to speak on a theme that was consistent with the commitments of the vision and mission of this congregation. And so we spent a little bit of time going back and forth on what that might be. And this is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, and it happens uh, to center on a theme that actually manifests itself in the name of this congregation, exilic. Um, exile is a very important theological idea in the Bible. Um, in the Old Testament, the people of God for many hundreds of years resided in their own land called Canaan or the promised land. Uh, it was uh, for many years ruled by the kings of Israel descending from David. And then finally, they were exiled into the nations. And that was a 
formative experience for the people of God. They had been in their land. Now they were living in a land that was not theirs amongst people who were not like them and who did not share their same religious beliefs and ultimate convictions about truth and about goodness and about life. And that experience was formative on the people of God. For hundreds of years, they lived in exile. And I happen to think for Christians today, reading especially the material from the Old Testament that comes from that period of exile is extremely helpful to guide us into the question of how we ought to live in the world that we find ourselves in today. Uh, For those of us who have lived in the United States for uh, some time, I'm almost 60 years old. I was born in South Carolina, and I was born in a time where there was still a strong vestige of Christian influence in the culture. Now, let me say, being from the southeastern United States, a lot of that Christianity was shallow and nominal. Uh, that, That is to say, a lot of people would have identified themselves as Christians And there was not a whole lot of Christian doctrine. There wasn't a whole lot of Christian ethics. There weren't a whole lot of Christian emphases and commitments in their experience. They would have identified as Christian without there being a lot of substance to that identification. But even that kind of vestige of Christian influence has begun to recede in our culture. And I think more and more Christians kind of feel like we are marginal to our culture. And actually, that's a good thing. Uh, Because the Lord expects us to live in exile here. There's a famous line in an old Negro spiritual from the days of slavery uh, in which this was sung, this world is not my home. And that's actually a very important thing for every Christian to understand. We live in exile. This world is not our home. This is not our land. Now, some of us can have very strong attachment to the places where we were born, and there's nothing necessarily wrong about that. Uh, South Carolinians are, Jay Harvey, who leads the campus here in New York City for Reformed Theological Seminary, is also from South Carolina, and South Carolinians are famous for a love of our homeland. Uh, Last century, there was a man who had been held as a prisoner of war during the American Civil War, and when he was being brought back from the prison camp into South Carolina, and the wagon reached the South Carolina border, he he yelled to the wagon driver, stop the wagon, stop the wagon. I must lay my head on the bosom of my mother, South Carolina. (laughs) He really loved the state of South Carolina. He was a very eccentric man. Uh, John Lafayette Gerardo, by the way, was his name, and he was a very popular preacher in New York City. That's another story for another day. But... uh, So people can be very attached to their homeland and to their place of their birth, but the Lord wants Christians not to feel like this world is our home. So how do you live as an exile, as a believer in this world? This passage 
is really about setting the preconditions for living the Christian life in a world that is not your home in a way that we bear a strong witness to Christ in a way that we can be salt and light in this world, in a way that we can impact and influence and affect the world for good and for God, but without giving in to the love of the things of this world. This passage is really about the preconditions for that. Now, I'd need to have a sermon series to do justice to it, but let me just draw your attention to several things in this passage. And the very first thing I want you to see in the first verse, Peter announces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then look at how he addresses these Christians who are spread throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. In other words, he addresses them himself to these Christians and identifies them as elect exiles. They're not just exiles. They, they are exiles in, in a couple of senses. One is uh, they uh, perhaps are dominantly Jewish Christians who have some roots back in Palestine and in Jerusalem, but they dwell in various parts of Asia Minor. And so they are away from their homeland. But the, the, the deeper and double meaning of this, of course, is that they are believers in a dominant pagan Roman culture. And as such, they experience life as second-class citizens. Uh, they're, they're looked upon with some suspicion. And it, it's, it, it's interesting. Christians in this world, especially in this country and culture right now, uh, have for a long time been looked down on intellectually. During the heyday of modernism, the culture looked down on us intellectually. It said, how in the world could people believe in these supernatural things that Christianity uh, purports to be true. In our day and time, in addition to looking down on Christianity intellectually, the culture looks down on Christianity ethically. The, the culture does not believe that Christianity is sufficiently inclusive and tolerant. And so the, the culture actually despises Christian belief at two levels, doctrine and ethics, theology and Christian living, the, the culture looks down upon. And so Christians oftentimes feel like second-class citizens in the eyes of the world. And to encourage people who feel marginal, who feel looked down upon, Peter says, remember, you are elect exiles. You, you're not just exiles, you're chosen you're chosen by God. Now, election is a doctrine that even Christians argue about, right? Your Christian friends who don't believe in election are sometimes offended that you do believe in election. And they're a little bit confused. And sometimes they, they think that you're prideful for believing the doctrine of election. Now, by the doctrine of election, I mean that doctrine that says that ultimately speaking, 
We have not chosen God. He has chosen us. Remember, Jesus said that to his disciples. He said, you have not chosen me. I have chosen you. Do you realize how important that truth is? It's important at multiple levels. It's important for these exiles because the world despised them. And Peter is reminding them that God delighted in them. The world despised them, but God delighted in them. It's important for another reason, because we all know in the Christian life, if our security with God is based on our fidelity to him, guess what? Bad news. We're never going to have security because we fail the Lord all the time. But if our security with God is based on his choosing of us, his fidelity to us, his faithfulness to us, his promises to us, then we can have security in the Christian life. And so here, here is Peter saying to this group of marginal Christians, remember, even though you're exiles, you are chosen exiles. You have been chosen by God. In the Bible, the doctrine of election is not a teaching that is designed to puff us up. It is a teaching that simultaneously humbles us because who can brag that you were chosen by grace? <laughs> I mean, if we're saved by grace, who can, who can brag about that? I mean, the, the whole point of grace is it's not about you, it's about God. Who can brag about that? That actually humbles you, but it also assures you because your salvation is not based on your goodness, your deserving, your choices. It is based upon the unmerited grace of God displayed in his choosing of people like us. It, it's not us saying to the world, we're better than you. You remember when... Moses gives his last sermon to Israel in Deuteronomy 7. He says to them, the Lord did not choose you because you were the greatest of peoples, for in fact, you were the least. And then what does he go on to say? But the Lord chose you because he loved you. In other words, he didn't choose you because of something in you. He chose you because of something in him. And that doctrine of election then not only humbles us, we're not the greatest, we're the least. But in God's love, he has chosen us to be his. And that doctrine then gives us confidence to live with love even in a world that despises us. Because, you know, our God tells us to love our neighbor. Well, how can you love your neighbor when your neighbor hates you? Part of the answer is because you remember that your God loves you and that sets you free to love neighbors that don't love you because you don't need to get your sense of worth from your neighbor. You have it from God and that sets you free simply to care for your neighbor even if your neighbor doesn't love you or like you. So, very important point, the, the truth that we are chosen and precious to God, and you see that especially in verses 1 and 2, 
is a precondition for living effectively and faithfully as exiles in this world. A second thing I want you to see, look at verse 3. Uh, Peter, and it's very apparent, if you read all the way down uh, to verse 12, it's very apparent in this little letter that Peter is trying to equip these Christians to endure persecution. Uh, they don't know it, but the, the Christians that are receiving this letter will, in a matter of just a few months, begin to experience the effects of the Neronian persecution. Many of you, even if you don't know much Roman history, you've heard of the Emperor Nero. He was crazy. And um, many people believe that he was personally responsible for at least part of the great fire of Rome that destroyed so much of the city, but he blamed it on Christians. And uh, these Christians throughout the, the regions, not just in Rome, but are, around the Roman world, are going to experience an empire-wide persecution of them because they are Christians. By the way, that, that goes on all around the world today. It's, it's as prevalent as it has ever been. Christians are persecuted all around the world today. And Peter is trying to prepare them. How do, how do you prepare to experience that? And what is so fascinating, look at what he says in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the, the second precondition of living as exiles in this world is doxology. Notice it, it, he, he says, bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not sure that I would have thought to have said that to people that were about to be persecuted. He, he says to them, it's very, very important for you that you be ready to praise God. Even in persecution? Yes. M many of you have seen the words of the pastor of the early reign Presbyterian Church, um, who, whose congregation has experienced persecution by the Chinese government, and the brave refusal to bow the knee to the, the atheistic persecuting party. Uh, by the way, there, there were pastors and elders of that congregation that were reciting out loud the shorter catechism as they were taken to prison. And it's really an amazing thing to see. And I've, I've been privileged to see that kind of bravery. One of, my, one of my dear friends in Jakarta, Indonesia, was the governor of Jakarta. He was also a, 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 a ruling elder in a, in a Presbyterian congregation and was put in jail uh, because of the, the radical Islamic party in, uh, in Jakarta being threatened by him as the governor of Jakarta. Or I'm thinking about five years ago, I was at, um, was at John MacArthur's church in California, and he told the story of an 18-year-old young woman who was from a, a closed Muslim country, a Sunni Muslim country where it's, it's illegal to convert to Christianity, who had become a Christian and had come to Master's University to study. Uh, she had gone back home for Christmas break, and when she got back to her home, her parents were not there, but her uncle was there. 
and her uncle was a very devout Muslim believer who was deeply offended by her having become a Christian, and he took a chair and broke it and began to beat her to death. She survived. Her, her, her dad got home while she was being assaulted by his brother, and he rescued her from his brother and took her to the hospital, and then he took her to the airport and sent her back to California and said, honey, you're not going to be able to come back home. And Dr. MacArthur heard about this and interviewed her and finally said to her, what were you thinking when your uncle was trying to kill you? And this 18-year-old young woman looks at him and she says, I was thinking this man has a religion that he would kill for, but I have a savior I would die for. That, that was humbling for me to hear. That's an 18-year-old girl that I think is probably a lot braver than I am. But here, here's the thing. She was ready to die for her Savior because she loved him. And she was ready to praise her Savior even in death. And here is Peter saying to these exiles, here, here's, here's one thing you need as you get ready to face persecution is you need to be ready to praise God. You need to be ready to acknowledge that God is better than anything, to give him honor, to rejoice in him. The world can take away everything from you, including your life, but they can't take away your God. They can't lay a finger on him. And therefore, you've got to be prepared to praise. In other words, he's saying that for the believer, one of the things that persecution leads us to is praise. And doxology, praise to God, actually helps us endure trial and persecution. I had the privilege of being in the, uh, the, the uh, uh, NICU, uh, the intensive care unit for little children at Blair Batson Hospital in Jackson, Mississippi, when my good friend Margaret was holding her two-year-old boy as he was dying. Uh, it's a traumatic story that I, I won't share the whole of. I'll simply say this. Um, those doctors and nurses in the NICU, they see hard stuff all the time. By the way, pray for people that serve in that setting. They see hard stuff all the time. And consequently, they're pretty tough. Uh, but on that day, we were all gathered in the room as her two-year-old boy was taking his last breath. And I, I mean, I, I watched... The vital signs go down and down and down and finally flatline on the machine. And, and even those tough doctors and nurses, there were, there were tears coming from their eyes. And uh, Margaret looked up at me. She was holding her boy, and she said, Ligon, could we sing the doxology? Now he, he, her, her little two-year-old boy has just died in her arms. And here this Christian woman says to me, can we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow? Isn't that amazing? How can she do that? Because she understood 1 Peter 1. You know, the trials of life, the hardships of life, the afflictions of life, the, even the persecutions of life lead us to praise God. Why? Because God is better than anything. I, let me tell you, when she said that, I felt like, Lord, I have no business being in the same room with this woman. This woman is so godly, I, you know, I need to take my shoes off and go somewhere else. Because this woman, I felt like I was in the presence of Job. You know, what, what did Job do when, when the report came that his family had been lost? 
the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he fell down and worshiped God. He, this, this is exactly what Peter is talking about. There's no awful condition in life that should keep us from praising God because he is the greatest blessing and no one and no thing can take him away from us or in any way sully the glory of his goodness. And so here's another precondition of living as exiles in this world. We, we've always got to be ready to praise God from whom all blessings flow. Here's a third thing. Look at, look at verse 3. Again, notice he says that he has blessed us according to his great mercy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. In other words, when you ask the question, how is it that we can praise God when these horrible things happen in our lives? The answer is because of his mercy. Every single believer is the recipient of an enormous mercy from God. Every single believer is the recipient of an enormous mercy from God. And it is that mercy that prompts our praise. You see, if our praise is prompted by our circumstances, then when things are good, we'll praise God, and when things are bad, we won't. But if our praise is rooted in God's mercy, we can always praise God because circumstances are sometimes going to be good and sometimes they're going to be bad. But God's mercy, well, you just sang it, right? His mercy is more. By the way, almost every song you sang today was written by a friend of mine. It was, I can't wait to write to Matt Boswell and to some of these other folks and tell them what we were singing together here at Exilic Presbyterian Church. I was just with Matt uh, two months ago in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and I love that song, His Mercy is More. In other words, that's, that doesn't change. It doesn't matter what's happening in your life. That's real. That's there. And that enables you to praise no matter what, no matter where, no matter when. So when you realize that praise is rooted in mercy, not in the circumstances of, his, of your life, it allows you to praise God in every circumstance. That's, that is a precondition of living as exiles in this world. And by the way, that is such a powerful witness. I, I cannot tell you, unbelievers, will sit, they will look at that and they will say, okay, there is something different going on in that person's heart and life. That they can praise God no matter what is going on in their life. That, that, you, that is continually used to bear witness to Christ and to the gospel. When you live lives that are rooted not in your circumstances but in God's mercy and you are able to praise him no matter what, that is an amazing thing, and it's amazing witness to Jesus Christ. Here's a fourth thing I want you to see. Notice, again, in verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So our living in exile, uh, effectively and faithfully in, in this world, is dependent upon election, verse 1, doxology, verse 3, God's mercy, verse 3, but also the new birth. Now, 
since about the time of the Carter administration, before most of you were born, but when I was a teenager, uh, in the United States in the 1970s, the words born again and new birth have been part of cultural parlance. But unfortunately, they often have political associations or associations with a strange subgroup of Christians. You know, when you hear born again, sometimes you start thinking televangelists or you think of a particular political group uh, or you think of a subgroup within Christians. Understand that what Peter is talking about here is essential to Christianity. Uh, what, what he's saying is, by God's mercy, you have received new life from God. You have been born again to a living hope. You have received new life from God. And let me say it to you this way. We do not have in us what we need to live in this world. That comes from God. Only God can put it there. And God calls that different things in the Bible, but one of the big things he calls that in the Bible is the new birth or to be born again. In other words, the Christian life is not making a resolution to do better. The, the, the Christian life is not trying harder. The Christian life is not um, wanting to do our best. The, the, the Christian life is not making a new start in life. It is receiving a new life to start with. To, to be born again is to receive from God what you need so that you love God who made the world rather than the world made into God. And you see, that's the big problem. People love the gifts that God has given. They love the things that he has made better than they love the God who gave the gifts and made those things. And that ruins life, right? That's worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So how can you worship the creator, not the creature? Only by the new birth. Only by opening, by God opening your eyes to see that the things of this world are futile to live for because they will pass away. But God will never pass away. Where do you get that from? You get that from God. Only God can open your eyes to see that. Only God can give you the new birth. Only God can give you that new start in life. And so if you're here today and you don't believe on Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel, what we who do trust in him are praying for you is that the Lord will open your eyes to your need and that he will give you new birth by his spirit so that you love him more than you love anything else in the world. By the way, only then can you really enjoy the things of this world. Because if you love the things of this world more than God, they will never satisfy you because you were created only to be satisfied by God. I love the quotation in the bulletin, by the way, from C.S. Lewis today, as well as what your pastor shared with you today. But it, by, by the way, you know, he, he, he says in that quotation, 
Uh, look at the second sentence of the quotation. There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. You know, if, if you love the things of this world more than God, you will never ever appreciate that you were made for God himself and only God can satisfy you. C.S. Lewis also said this, our problem is not that we want too much, it's that we settle for too little. In other words, we, you know, we, we will settle for the things of this world when we were made for the enjoyment of God himself. Don't be satisfied with less than God himself. Only then can the things of this world really be enjoyed because he's better than them and he's the giver of them. And when we realize that he's the giver of them, then we can start seeing those things as gifts from the Father who loves us and cares for us, not as the ultimate blessing. He's the ultimate blessing. And the new birth brings about that change so that you love God more than you love this world. And ironically, that actually helps you to live in this world more effectively. If you need this world more than you need God, you can't live in this world in love towards other people because you will be competing with them to try and get what you need, what you think you need, to live a successful life or a happy life or whatever it is that you're wanting to do in your ambition. But if you realize that God is the great gift, then you can live in this world not as a competitor with your fellow human beings to try and grab as much as you can get, but as one who loves and cares for them and shows to them the love of God in Christ and wants to bless them and help them and love them well. Very, very quickly, notice the gifts that he gives along. You see this in verses 3 to 5. He gives along with the new birth. He gives the gifts of hope, inheritance, and salvation. I'm, I'm, I'm already past my time, so I won't talk about all three of those things. But let me, let me just say this. There are a lot of people trying to live life without hope. There are a lot of people around you trying to... Some, there may be some of you who came here today hopeless because of things in your experience. And I want you to see that God gives hope. Just think how important that was for persecuted people to, to be given hope. Some of these people would be, um, would be exiled I mean, they would be taken away from where they are and they would be sent to places like Patmos, like John, where they would live in exile. Some of these people would be put to work in the salt mines. Some of these people would be separated from their families. Some of these people would lose their jobs. Some of these people would be executed during the Neronian persecution. When you're experiencing that, you need hope. And notice he says, he's given you an imperishable hope, an inextinguishable hope, a hope that can't be put out. Again, I keep referencing South Carolina. Uh, Jay and I come from South Carolina. The motto of the state of South Carolina in Latin is dum spiro spero. While I breathe, I hope. I've always wondered where that came from. It's a profoundly Christian motto. While I breathe, I hope. No, as long as I'm breathing, I have hope. And here he says one of the gifts that the Lord has given you is hope. Christians are not hopeless in this life. And what does that allow you to do? Live as exiles in this world. 
Look quickly at verses 6 to 8. Here, here's, this is hugely important. Notice that he says that though you grieve, you're grieved by various trials, you rejoice. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This is the same as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We are, as believers, we are sorrowing yet rejoicing. By the way, that ought to be a banner over every Christian church. Everybody in this world is going to sorrow. Everybody in this world is going to be a sorrow, is going to sorrow. Not everybody in this world can rejoice even in the sorrowing. And Peter, just like Paul says, one of the distinctive things about believers is that even in our griefs, even in our trials, even in our sorrows, we can rejoice. And he's actually telling them to expect these kinds of grief-producing trials and to remember that they can rejoice anyway. So what he makes clear is that it is necessary in this life that we are going to suffer. I mean, think of it. Our Savior suffered. He's our master. We're his followers. Do we think that we're somehow going to be exempt from suffering in this life? Our Savior suffered. We should expect it. But here's the question. The question is, okay, you're going to suffer, but are you going to rejoice? And and the answer is only in Christ. In Christ, you can rejoice. Now, one last thing. If you look at verse 9, he says all of this is going to lead to love for Christ in you, even though you've never seen him. Isn't that beautiful? Because none of us have ever seen the Lord. Peter had seen the Lord. Peter's speaking to people who had never seen them. Peter had had the privilege of seeing the Lord in the flesh. He says, now, even though you haven't seen him, you love him. It's one of the things, it's just here's one of the blessings of future glory for us is that we will finally see the Lord that we've loved for many years without having seen. But here, here's the thing I want you to see. The realization of God's love for us in Christ leads us to love for Christ. And that, again, is absolutely essential for living as exiles in this world. So really, these seven things are the preconditions for us living faithfully and effectively as exiles. I love the name of your church. And and I hope that as, as your pastors explain this to you more, you will appreciate more deeply the biblical roots of the idea that we're living in exile. But especially, I I pray that you would know these realities which undergird your ability to live with joy, even if we're marginal in the eyes of the world, even if we're persecuted by the world, even if we are surrounded by difficulties and trials and griefs in our lives. We can rejoice because of these truths. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would bless it to our faith and to our assurance in Jesus' name. Amen.